reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, starting with verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 4, starting with verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel according to St. John, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. 
How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Gospel of the Lord. Um, Today is the second Sunday in Lent. Lent is a season of recognizing our own dependence, of choosing to trust in him in a world of competing stories. So today we hear both the story of the calling of Abram, which Elsie read so well. Elsie, thank you so much. And the story of Nicodemus approaching uh, Jesus at night. So in Genesis 12, the calling of Abram, we see this bridge between two parts of the story. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1 through 11, we have this creation story, beautiful, amazing creation story. God creates the world, and then God's dealing with humankind, the ways in which he cares for the entire world. And then all of a sudden, here in chapter 12, he zooms, the story zooms in on one couple, Abram and Sarai. In the preceding chapters, we've been given all these genealogies. If you know what genealogies are in Scripture, it's such and such begat such and such, and they kind of go down the line, and this is the lineage of all the people and how they move forward. Adam and Eve had kids, and their kids had kids, and their kids had kids, and it traces the lineage. But in Genesis 12, we reach a stopping point in all of that, a roadblock, because Abram and Sarai are barren. Now, in the ancient world, barrenness was a sign of loss of agency and of meaning. From all accounts, Abram and Sarai are figures to be pitied here in this ancient world. Their part of the story ends here. In fact, the story of the people kind of seems to end here, according to Genesis 12. But throughout Scripture, it's interesting. It's barrenness. It's that place of emptiness which becomes the sign and the groundwork of God's work in the world. Barrenness is a good image for Lent because it reminds us of the human state, that on our own we have nothing. We're empty-handed. Walter Brueggemann says, Barrenness is the way of human history. It is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. The marvel of biblical faith is that barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving action. So when we see barrenness in the scripture, or when we see emptiness or inability to have children, it's like God is about to work. God's about to do something. This becomes the groundwork of God's activity in the world. So Abram is, who is Abram? He's this normal pagan dude. Like, there's nothing really special about him. There's nothing attractive that we see about him or pious particularly about him. And Abram grew up in a culture where, a pagan culture, where the gods were seen as angry and unfriendly. In fact, there were priests whose primary responsibility was to just keep the people from the anger of the gods. Do whatever you can to keep the gods away from you and their wrath away from you. And in some sense, our world is actually not much different from Abram's world. We look back on it and we go, this feels foreign and different, but it's, it's really not that different. Our gods in our world have been secularized, and we don't think of them in the same way. 
But we are inundated constantly with anxiety and guilt and indifference and all of these feelings of needing to be something or to please something in our world. There's a unique thing, though, about God, about the true God, about Yahweh, is that he seeks relationship. Abram is now in a relationship with God. That's unique among all the pagan gods of the ancient world. And it is only because of this relationship that Abram is able to choose to leave all that he knows and follow God's calling. So Abram's an average guy in a pagan land, but many years after his death, so something happens in this moment, this average guy, this pagan dude, something happens in this moment where many, many years after his death, in the Bible, three times Abraham is called a friend of God. So Abram's identity has changed from random guy who's called to now because of God's initiative, he is friend of God. That's his defining reality. And it's significant that God uses this word friend. It's also significant that that's the same word that Jesus picks up as he calls his disciples. He calls them friends. God tells Abram that he will bless him, that he has a special land for him, and he will make him a great nation. So God speaks this word in the midst of barrenness, and barrenness is the groundwork of good news. So this becomes defining for Israel, who they are as the people of God. There are people who are empty on their own, who are barren on their own, but God speaks. So the barrenness of Israel and the speech of God becomes the defining reality of God's people. And in the same way, like I said, Abram himself doesn't bring anything to the table in relationship with God. He's not particularly heroic, even after his calling. He doesn't do much, even throughout his life, like most people would not look at Abram's life and say he did all these meaningful things. He does successfully intercede for Sodom, but he's also recorded as doing many, if not more, wrong things than right things. He lied to protect his own skin, and in doing so, he sacrifices his wife's reputation. He laughed at God when God's promises seemed to be too much for him. He was a coward in a situation with Abimelech. The defining thing, the only thing we really know about Abram, and the orienting thing about his life, is he was in relationship with God. God spoke, and God called him, and that's it. God's speech has the final say over barrenness. In this way, the text actually points us to the New Testament, to resurrection. Previously, there's nothing, there's emptiness, there's no fertile ground, and God speaks and a faithful people are called into being. Think about that in the Old Testament. God speaks and calls Abraham. He calls a people into being, a nation into being. Think about it in the New Testament. Because of the resurrection, because of this act of new creation of God speaking, there's a community, the church. This is how things work. Now, God disrupts Abram. He tells him to go on a journey, which will be incredibly difficult. He calls him to a life of risk based on his promise. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So if you think of this in the context of Genesis, we hear a a world that is broken and chaotic because of sin. All right, that's all through Genesis. 
And in the midst of brokenness, people are out there trying to make a name for themselves. So think about the Tower of Babel story, which comes in the chapter right before this. It's a people trying to make a name for themselves, trying to make their own name great. And I think that condition sounds familiar today. We live in this world. We run around frantically trying to find our name trying to come up with or create our name based on all sorts of things. We try to build things, and we lash out against each other. For those that we don't agree with, we choose self-rule in an effort to carve out who we are. And in the midst of such a world, God steps in and names a person, names a family, not because of what they've done, but simply because of his grace. God calls Abram. God always calls his people to radical reorientation, to remember who created them, who loved them first, and who names them. The imperative, um, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you in verse 1, is followed by five promises. I've mentioned them already, but I'll mention them again here. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Now notice the subject of every sentence is I. <laughs> this is nothing Israel has done or Abram has done. There is no Israel yet, but until there's nothing Abram's done. It is a gift of God. And if you think about these promises that God gives to Abram, these are the promises for things that we all crave. Well-being, security, prosperity, and prominence. We want those things. Abram and Sarai were unable to carve out those things for themselves. So this is God's gift. God's people are blessed, and that blessing carries with it a blessing for the nations. So Israel's always called outwards. Israel's always called to be a people in public. And it's not necessarily that they're called to go and do. There's a sense that that's true, but that's not their primary thing but that just by being his people in the world, they will be a blessing to all nations. It's God's desire always to be near his people and for the earth to be filled with his glory, for creation to be restored to how he intended it. And God chooses to do this in and through his people, through us. He tells his people they will be blessed and all nations will be blessed by them. Now, of course, Abram doesn't see all this in the moment. I think if he did see all this in the moment, he would be completely overwhelmed at all that's happening. For him, the call is just simple. The call is the call of all disciples. Take a step. Take the step out of one's current situation and follow. St. Anthony, one of the desert fathers, says of this reading, and he went without hesitating at all, but being ready for his calling. This is the model for the beginning of this way of life. It still persists in those who follow this pattern. Wherever and whenever souls endure to bow to it, they easily attain the virtues, since their hearts are ready to be guided by the Spirit of God. Just as Abraham was called, each of us are called. We are called as a people to follow. Our Romans reading that Jessica read uh, points back to this story. The backdrop of Romans, if you know anything about the book of Romans, we've talked about this before, 
is um, really this ongoing conflict related to ethnicity. It's really interesting. It's a strange thing for us to think about in our world today. But what's happening is the early church, which was primarily a Jewish movement, so you have all these Jewish Christians, are starting to see that the Holy Spirit is working among non-Jewish people people of other ethnicities, and they're coming into the family of God. And so there's this group of people that are going, well, if they're coming to the family of God, they need to be culturally Jewish like us. They need to lay down all their other um, cultures and backgrounds, and they need to join us. So there's this ongoing conflict, and Paul is just addressing it constantly. In fact, in the modern church, we don't talk about enough how much Paul is talking about this particular thing. He's talking about how do we eat together? How do we sit down together? How do we be the family of God? Well, Paul says Abram was the beginning of all this stuff. This covenant family whom now believers, Jew and Gentile, belong. And he uses this word of Abram, justified. Justification, when it says somebody is justified in the scripture, it's this idea of declaring someone in the right. So you are right, you are in the right. And then also being part of God's new family. There's this sense in justification. You're part of the family of God. And Paul says Abram wasn't justified because he was part of the right biological family or because he was part of the right ethnicity. Because remember, at this time, there is no Israel. (laughs) Abram is called as this random pagan dude in a pagan culture, and God calls him. Someone who is seen as having no human potential, God calls him. Abram is justified only because of the trust in God that he shows. Now, I think about Um, In my life, I I think about the day when the judge declared that Lucy, our daughter, was officially part of our family. Now, this is such an interesting thought that I've had in my life because there's a sense in which she was part of our family at every point in the journey, right? So whenever her birth mother chose us for the first time, wow, she's part of our family. Whenever she's born and we take her home from the hospital, she's part of our family. These are these marker, these moments that we know she's part of our family. But there was something, and for us it took like two years because we had complications with stuff. Two years for the judge to actually declare this is Lucy Rachel Sharp. Apologize about this thing. But when she said that, when the judge slams the gavel and says that um, and declares that she is part of our family, there is something about that moment when she was part of the family that is named Sharp. (laughs) Now, I could even abstract it out beyond those moments that I just described and say there is a sense in which she was always part of our family from the beginning of time, (laughs) that, that God knew that this was the reality of what would happen. But even still, there's something in that declarative act when the judge declared that moment. Justification is a gift of God. The word for it here is it says of Abram that the justification was credited to him. This is a Greek word, logizomai, which comes from the business world of the time. And it means to calculate as, to regard as, or to reckon, to reckon, he's reckon justified, to look upon him as. Paul uses this word a bunch of times with many different nuances, but here it's interesting. The root word of logizomai is the word logos, and forgive me for for boring some of you with this, but but logos is this idea of word or speech or the speaking. So logizomai here is pointing out that this is the idea of he has spoken, he's worded, and something has changed in Abram. That by God's speaking, by, by God's crediting or declaring that something has changed in him. So it's not just that 
God looks at Abram and says, okay, I think I'm going to think of you now as part of a different category. No. It's that he looks at Abram and he speaks something and Abram has changed. Who he is is changed fundamentally. And this is something only God's word can do because God's speaking is powerful. It has the ability to make someone righteous, to change a person. That person is justified. Now, remember, there's all these Jewish Christians that are hearing this at this time, and and they're thinking, okay, these people need to become culturally Jewish. And that made sense in their context because that is what they'd known. That's been part of the story and the people of Israel. They need to be circumcised. They need to keep all the festivals. They need to keep the food laws. But, Paul says, our great ancestor in the faith, the one where it all started, Abram, didn't come about by that route. He wasn't part of the right family. All Abram did was trust in the God who declares the ungodly to be right. In fact, he didn't do anything. He's being brought into the family, didn't depend on his covenant keeping. So the invitation now is for Gentiles, pagans, to come into God's family exactly as Abraham did himself, empty-handed. Verse 17 says, He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Our God is the one, just like the Abram story, our God is the one who creates out of nothing. God tells the guy who can't have kids, who's not part of any right family or brings any piousness to the table, he's going to be the father of many nations, and he will be blessed, and the world will be blessed through him. This is a great story, but what, what does it mean? Well, God calls you and me out of nothing, too. That our dependence on God is what makes us so beautiful. That we were created by God in his image, and we are fully dependent on him, which is an amazing thing. We don't think about dependence as a good thing in our world today. But dependence on God is exactly the place where we need to be. This is so freeing because it means who you are is not dependent on what you do. Who you are is not dependent on how much money you make, how life is going for you today, your emotional state, what other people think about you. No, God's named you. God has called you. God has declared you part of his family. In our gospel reading, we hear this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. The author of John's gospel says that Nicodemus uh, came to Jesus at night which it's possible John's communicating something here, okay? John 1, 4 through 5, the very beginning of his gospel says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if you look in John's gospel, you'll notice that this light and dark theme is present throughout. So it's possible when Nicodemus came to him at night, well, it's possible he just came to him at night, and that's it. (laughs) But it's also possible that John's communicating something that he's a man in the shadows, that he's a man in darkness, and he's being confronted by the true light. St. Augustine read it this way. He says of Nicodemus, he wished to be enlightened and feared to be known. So he's coming and he's seeking out enlightenment, but he's about to be confronted by the light that shows who he is. Nicodemus is seeking something, so he seeks out Jesus. And this is risky for Nicodemus because he's part of the Pharisees who are often the opponents of Jesus in the Gospels. What if someone sees him? What if somebody sees me talking to Jesus? 
Well, Jesus tells Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus asks a very innocent-sounding question. I think it makes a lot of sense. How can someone be born again when they're old? doesn't make sense. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, Jesus is talking about a different kind of birth. He's telling Nicodemus about a radical reorientation. He's saying when you are born again, you can't trust the things that you trusted in before. You're not defined by the things you were defined by before. When someone's born again, they're part of a new family. They're part of a new story. Born again is also translated born from above or born from heaven. So to be born from above or born from heaven is to have a complete change. In other words, Nicodemus needs a complete change, a complete redefinition of who he is. Now, we have to talk about this because today, especially those of us that grew up in evangelical traditions, the freight, when we hear born again, <laughs> we think about altar calls. We think about uh, specific moments where a person is converted to Christianity. Uh, I don't know about you, but the thing that Billy Graham crusades come, they, those are the pictures that come in my brain when I think about born again. And there are dramatic conversion stories throughout church history. Many of you have had those dramatic conversion stories, stories or you know of people who have had those kind of stories. For example, St. Francis was... He was going into battle as a soldier, and he was completely turned around. He was completely changed, and he had a conversion to Christianity that was sudden and abrupt and dramatic. But then there are also some stories that are not like this. So if you think about C.S. Lewis, like C.S. Lewis wrestled with God for years. Finally, he felt that he was holding something at bay. In fact, if you read his story, it just makes me laugh. And then ultimately, when he finally, he's got all these stages that he described about he came to Christianity. And then finally, he says he was the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. So for C.S. Lewis, conversion is fine, okay? Fine. It's not this joyous altar call experience. It's I give up, right? Sometimes this change, this dramatic, re, this conversion happens in process. It's a wrestling with God. And even after, as we believe we're part of the family of faith, and that's what baptism embodies and speaks to, right? That even as we come in and we have that identity change and we step into that, we still wrestle. There's still times we look back at the old life and we say, there's some attractive things to this. The Spirit works in our heart by peeling away the layers of our old identities and revealing who we truly are. In the third installment of the Chronicles of Narnia series, um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the book opens with these words. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. It's the beginning of the book. <laughs> Eustace is this young boy who is self-centered and spoiled and bratty. And one day when he's in Narnia, fast-forwarding a lot of the story, but one day when he's in Narnia, he discovers a dragon's treasure, and he becomes obsessed with it. So he puts like the drag, a, a, like a um, bracelet from the dragon's treasure on his wrist, and he sits over the dragon's treasure, and he becomes obsessed with it. The quote is, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragon's thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. So what ultimately happens is he wakes up one day, and he is the dragon. 
This is this sense of like whatever we give our lives to, whatever our obsession becomes, we actually become that thing. We become formed into that thing. So he actually becomes the dragon himself. And that gold bracelet he had put on his arm as a, as a boy is now cutting into the dragon's arm and he's hurting. So in addition to the pain, the physical pain he's feeling, he feels isolated and alone. He's this lonely dragon. And then Aslan the lion, who's the Christ figure, shows up. And he leads Eustace to a garden. There's all this biblical imagery that I won't unpack here. He leads him to a garden, and then there's a well in the center of the garden. And Eustace looks at the well, and he's like, if I could just get in there with this pain, if I get into the well, that would feel so good on my skin. But Aslan tells him he must get undressed first. Well, he's a dragon. He doesn't really have clothes on at this point, so he's confused. But he remembers that dragons have skins like snakes do. So they can be shed. So he starts tearing off the dragon skin. But after he peels off one layer, there's just another one, and it's nasty and scaly underneath it. And no matter how hard he tries, he can't get rid of this icky, gross dragon skin. And then this is from the book. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it just hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio. <laughs> but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, I became perfectly delicious. <laughs> and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. This, of course, is an image of baptism here. This is this image of what God does to us, and it is only God's work. And yet we are even on the other side of baptism, we are still always tempted back towards the dragon stories <laughs> to define ourselves by that reality and by who we were. And yet something new has happened. We have a new identity. In fact, Jesus points to that here. He says new birth happens in Christ in two ways, by water and the Spirit. That is both baptism, baptism that happens in water, the initiating of God's kingdom, and an inner work of the Holy Spirit. Both of those are necessary. Both of those matter. This is how new birth happens. These things signal that a person is part of the family of God. And then Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, we can't nail down the Spirit's work. God is working in ways we would never expect. And this means that being part of God's family is now available to everybody. 
It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on piousness or performance. Everyone is invited. John 3.16, of course, is the most familiar verse in all of Scripture. We raise it up at sporting events. You know, you see it on the eye black of football players, right? And it's a great verse. But what we don't know is that this, often don't know, is that this verse is used in the context of a story about snakes. Verses 14 to 15, Jesus tells the story of when Israel in the Old Testament were in the wilderness and they were bitten by snakes. The people complained to Moses and he prays to God for them. So they become really sick because of this snake venom. And God tells Moses to make a snake out of bronze and to put it on a pole and that whenever someone looks upon the snake, they will be healed. Moses does this and they were healed. To this day, you've probably seen the symbol of a snake wrapped around a pole is used by the American Medical Association, by all kinds of different medical groups, because that's where this story originates. Well, John is saying humanity has been smitten with a deadly disease. We have snake venom coursing through our veins to the point where it infiltrates every part of us, similar to the dragon skin, right? The only cure is to look upon the Son of Man dying on the cross and find life through believing in him. Well, it gets a little confusing. We go, the metaphor feels weird because Jesus is not a poisonous snake. So why is looking upon him the healing? How is that similar to the Moses problem? Well, the snakes, of course, were the problem. They weren't the solution. So what is John saying? He is saying the evil which inflicts us all. The snake venom of sin was somehow allowed to take on its full force on Jesus. But when we survey the wondrous cross, as the old song says, what we are looking at is the result of that evil in which we are all stuck. And we're also at the same time seeing what God has done about it. God took the venom on himself. God took the snakiness upon himself. God took all of that evil upon himself on the cross for us. And it's after that, after pointing to that story, Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then the next part is important too. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is true love. God took the evil of the world upon himself and all we can do is what the Israelites were called to do. We look and we trust. Jesus is the healing of our poison and none of the other things we try to find healing in are really ultimately true all the way through. So this week's readings, I'll close with this, lead us to a place of empty-handedness and, and, and uh, disruption a place where we realize, okay, our lives as we previously thought of them are disrupted, they're changed, and we really bring nothing to the table. But the good news is that God meets us there. We are dependent creatures in need of God. And these readings challenge us about our identity, who we are, about our formation as the people of God. So we have to ask ourselves during Lent, like what happens when you find yourself in the desert? This week, I think several of us at different levels, you know, some of us not extreme levels, but when this wind started happening this week, a lot of us got into a bit of a sense of helplessness. Like, what is happening? I saw all of my 
furniture on my porch just all of a sudden blow off the porch. I mean, this is substantive furniture, and it's like gone all of a sudden. And then my daughter goes outside, and I'm like, should she be outside? I don't think she should be outside. She needs to come inside. And, and we're like, what, you know, what is happening? And is the tree right there going to fall? And, you know, what, what's, we get into this place. And so, but we get these places often in our lives. It's not often weather in that way, but we get to these places where we go, okay, I'm in this helpless place, and where do we go? What do we turn to? Where do we go when the chips are down, when our backs are against the wall? To what do we turn? What is it that defines us? Who am I really? These are the questions of Lent. Well, my hope today is just to hear this declaration. There's no steps this week. (laughs) There's no practical application. I just want you to hear this this morning. Be reminded of this. You are a child of God. You are dependent on him. You are made in his image, and you are part of his family. You're called to be a blessing. In your brokenness, in your sickness, God has not given up on you. You've been born again, and God is making his kingdom to come and his will to be done in and through your life. The truth is, when we are illuminated by this, we can't help but proclaim sin's antidote. Herald the kingdom of God. And shout to the world, the one who pronounces blessing and is giving new names. Amen.